it's quite a tricky time for lots of people at the moment, isn't it? I mean, we know that. That's just not a revelation. And it's also not a new thing, is it? I mean, I was trying to think when COVID started. Do you know when everything begins to blur? I mean, we sort of measure time BC and AD, don't we? Before, before COVID and after disease. Now, but I can't actually remember. I can't actually remember when BC was before COVID. Is it two years? Three years? Comes in those Okay. So March 2020. So that's like two years and two and a half years, something like that. All right. Okay. All right. Calm down. Uh, however long ago it was, it kind of blurs, doesn't it? But I mean, we've been managing life with COVID um, for quite a while, which had all sorts of implications, health-wise, I mean, sickness-wise, death-wise, pressure on the NHS, financially then, and all sorts of fallouts from that. Um, and kind of as we emerged out of that, we you know, fell back into it again, and then emerged out of it again, with all the challenges and pressures of that, and all the enormous levels of debt that that's caused, and kind of financial loss. And then kind of the war with Ukraine kicks off and then global prices go crazy and it's, in, you know, it's not just because of the war with Ukraine but it seems to be global problems with food prices and, and on then the energy crisis and you know, we seem to lurch from one challenge to the next challenge um, and I was saying at a meeting last night, there's lots of shaking going on. So there's quite, it's a tough time for lots of people and I think it's going to get harder. Um, and, and, and therefore there are and, and church numbers in many areas declining at least in the west they are anyway other places they're shooting up but there's lots of, and so there's lots of people who might be quite discouraged um, but I kind of want to say as a leader and particularly discouraged about the state of the church not just the church uh, but the global church or the church in the world. but actually in many ways I'm quite excited I've come to this new academic term quite excited I feel God wants to do some stuff in our city, in our community here and really important in our own hearts and lives because that's where it all begins. And, and I think as Christianity and mainstream culture sort of move further and further apart in terms of the message of the, the gospel, the true gospel, and what society says is truth, which always seems to change from day to day, depending on which paper you read, I think there's more of a challenge on the church to be bold and visible. Um, and live our faith more actively, more visibly, more in, perhaps more intentionally, rather than just passively rocking up a church and doing Christianity. There's more cost, isn't there, to have a faith? More challenge, more pressure, but actually I think more opportunity for therefore for the gospel to be seen as a real powerful thing. And I think the, the church at large, God is stirring the church to be more vibrant, more dynamic, more, perhaps more organic, more creative, and that excites me. And taking seriously, really seriously, the call to partner with Jesus, to partner with the Holy Spirit in what God is wanting to do in the world, which is transform the world, bring healing, bring hope, bring light. Um, Matthew 11, 12, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful men and women lay hold of it. Well, that verse is a strange verse. Many of the translations, it talks about violence. The kingdom of God has kind of has violence against it. And actually what it means is kind of like the, what that verse is actually saying is, when Jesus went and preached, the crowds pressed in. Like, it looked, looked violent. They were so desperate to hear the truth of the gospel that it kind of like people were pushing in and pressing in. And, and what it's saying is, actually, the truth of the gospel, God, the gospel is powerfully moving out. It's whether we have eyes to see it. And God is wanting a church where we take seriously his call to transform the world, to be involved in serving and loving others, to be engaged. Not just a church that turns up on a Sunday and sings a few songs and then goes 
hope. Christianity was never supposed to be that. Unfortunately, in many ways, perhaps in a slightly kind of sleepy Western church culture, it became that. But I believe in the days we're living in, God is calling us to take really seriously our faith and to be excited by what he wants to do in us and through us. And therefore, us looking at the book, Celebration and Discipline, um, is about saying, okay, Lord, how do we be better servants of Christ? How do we be better souls in life? How does our faith make more sense to the world, is more visible and more, um, not just sort of some personal faith, but actually a faith that transforms me, that people see the goodness of God. Christianity is supposed to work. We do believe that, right? (laughs) You know, knowing Jesus is supposed to make a difference in our lives and in the world. And we know that's true because you look at historically. You know, slavery globally came to a massive stop in the UK because of men like Wilberforce, who had a passionate faith, who said this injustice must stop. And across the states, people who stood up and said no to slavery. And you can look at all sorts of things, injustices in the world, and um, education of the masses, the healthcare system. Men and women who stood up and said, this is wrong. The gospel is about loving the poor, serving the needy, providing education, uh, resources, training. And I think that isn't, that's how it's supposed to be today. Back in 1978, this guy called Richard Foster, American, wrote this book, Celebration of Discipline, which has been read, it's been estimated by over 2 million people, which a book on spiritual disciplines is quite remarkable. It's been translated into so many languages. You might think, well, why is this book important? Why have so many people read it and talked about it? I think it begins with the inspiration of the title, calling a book Celebration of Discipline is probably a bit of a shock to people's systems because when we think of discipline, it's not usually something that makes us go, oh yeah, no, I'd like a bit of that. I mean, there are a few of us here who may be a bit sick. But most of us think, oh, just no. Let me lie in a bit longer. Let me just slob a bit more. Let me just chill out a bit. Um, So when we talk about celebration of discipline, it kind of piques our interest. Can can actually we celebrate this? Are these things supposed to be good and joyous? and life-giving, and of course, when they're of God, they are. So I think once you look into the book, you start seeing things in new ways. Um, Often, as I said before, spiritual disciplines have been seen as an excessive thing that the monastics went after. You know, fasting, (coughs) solitude, go and find yourself some island and sit there as a hermit for 25 years, and that's not what Richard Foster says you should do. But that's what we think of those things, fasting, you know, depriving yourself of food for 40 days and turning into a, a rake that would actually be quite helpful at the moment, coming back from a holiday. That's not what it's about. It's not about just sort of beating the flesh into submission. It's about yielding our hearts and lives, all of we are, and learning a new sense of joy as we encounter God in a whole new way. Um, and I think in the kind of saturated world that we live in today, achievement-driven, um, ego-centred, multi-layered consumer culture that we're part of, where stuff is thrown at us the whole time, Actually, some of these disciplines are more important than perhaps at any other time in human history. Mark and I were chatting about our, our glorious holidays that we were blessed enough to go on. But we were both commenting on the fact that we went to different resorts in different parts of the world. And we were asking ourselves, are we just becoming old farts? I'm not sure I can say that word in church. Are we just becoming old grumpy gits as we get older? That we were in these resorts by the pool and there was this kind of thumping music going on. And I looked around and most people there were 40 plus not massively looking like they were enjoying it. 
and you could not escape from this music. You went up to the bar, it was there, you went down to the beach, it was there through speakers that looked like rocks. You sat down the pool, it was there. I just thought, I just sat there and thought, I just long for a bit of silence. Am I just becoming an old guest? Possibly. But actually, I think, thank you Sarah, darling. Um, actually, I think it's symptomatic of the world that we live in today. That often, things are thrown at you to kind of like, you know, all your senses, visual, sound, smell, everything is so multisensory, that we get this overload and we begin to shut down. And God is wanting to take us through some of these disciplines to a place of encounter with him through new ways of being. And that's why it's a joy and a celebration of discipline, because this isn't about just beating ourselves and kind of flagellating ourselves till we bleed and weep. It's about learning a new way of being which transforms us on the inside and has outward fruit that I think the world will see, more importantly, that um, helps us encounter God in a whole new, deeper way. So it's a really good thing. It's a, a guiding light to help us to encounter God, learning physical rhythms, ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of living, foundations, I guess, that just constantly are there that affect the whole of our lives and our whole spiritual growth. Um, so in his book, I'm just giving you a bit of an overview because um, we, we probably as we do the different weeks, we won't have a chance to think about it all in context. I think it's quite helpful at the beginning to try and do that, and because this is being recorded, people will be able to pick up on it. Um, in his book, Foster divides 12 key disciplines that he speaks about. And I don't know how many we're doing this month, we're not doing all 12, are we? We're doing... Yeah, we're doing it in eight. And a number of them overlap. Um, so we're going to kind of do the ones we felt God was sort of leading us into. But he does 12 disciplines... And he puts them, and he groups them into three different areas, which are quite helpful. Three movements of the spirit, I think he calls them. And you know, it's not rocket science, but it's inward, outward, and corporate disciplines. So the inward disciplines are meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. Those four: meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. I think next Wednesday. Is it next Wednesday, Steve? I've lost track of where we are. Next Wednesday, the very lovely Sue is speaking on guidance. And guidance comes in one in a moment. Uh, and then we've got Steve coming to you. And Steve Hughes, who did our weekend away, um, he's going to do one on, I think, meditation and study. Meditation and solitude. Solitude. Perhaps <laughs> someone knows what's going on. <laughs> um, we're really blessed that Paul spoke on Sunday and that Sue's coming and, and Steve. You know, three beautiful people who, who, you know, we ask them to speak on these things because we know. They've got just such a rich vein of gold to speak on from their own experiences as well. Sorry, no pressure to for next week. But uh, we, know, we know it to be true, you know, and I think that's, that's a real joy. Um, so inward, meditation, prayer, fasting, study. That's kind of inward things that we do that bear fruit. And then the outward, simplicity, speaking on tonight, solitude, submission and service. And then the corporate ones, confession, which is what I'm doing on Sunday morning. Worship, we had on last Sunday. Guidance and celebration. <clears throat> so, go and have a look at it in the book if you want to. Um, and what's really helpful about the book is he doesn't just say these things and now go and do them. He kind of gives some practical examples as well and we're going to try and do that over these weeks. So, we're gonna, I'll, I'll rattle on. Simplicity. Um, it's probably going to be tricky to take notes from some of this, but it'll be on the rec- recording if you don't get it all down. Central point for the discipline of simplicity is to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of his kingdom first. 
That's what it's about. Simplicity, when you might think, oh, I wasn't expecting that. It's about seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first. First before anything else. And if you do that first, then everything else comes in its proper order. It involves a life of joyful, unconcerned for possessions. And that is a really important thing in the West for us, isn't it? Where possessions are really important. We have a tendency to want, to need, to hold on tightly to things, to be traumatised if we lose them, to make sure we cover for insurance so we can get new value for old. You know, and a lot of the things I'm going to say tonight might sound like, oh my gosh, have you got a, a, you know, you turning into, um, you know, Karl Marx or someone, or not Karl Marx. You know, anti-capitalism. It's not about that, it's about our attitude towards the things that we have. So, um, the key scripture I've just said, Matthew 6, 33, Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, 33. There's a film, City Slickers. Anyone remember the film, City yeah. Slickers? Am I showing my age? Great film. It's got Billy, what's his face in it? Crystal. Billy Crystal, that's all. Basically, there's these three, I don't know whether they're New York kind of guys, classic kind of City, city Slickers, and they kind of... Um, I guess they realise life is full on for them and basically what happens is they go off to the, to like the, the desert to go and become cowboys, don't they, for two weeks. The middle age. Yeah, mid, a bit of middle age crisis, aren't yeah. they going on? Middle age spread, middle age crisis, someone's going to identify with some of that at least. Um, and they kind of, they go and find themselves and kind of like get a bit of joy back in their life. So they go off to, to go and be cowboys for a couple of weeks, it's quite funny. Um, and they're kind of hoping to find a cure for their ills. Um, is Mitch, two friends, go off to New Mexico, Colorado, um, and they hang out with this, this um, cowboy who's called Curly. But there's a bit in the film where Cur- Curly, who's a real cowboy sitting on his horse and a cigarette coming out of his mouth, he says something along the lines of, well, you city folk, you're all the same. You spend a lifetime getting tied up in knots by all the pressure and anxiety and stress and all the stuff that crams in on you on all sides. And then you think that spending a couple of weeks out sitting on a horse pretending you're a cowboy will sort all that out for you. And you'll be reset and then you can go back to your lives. And that will straighten out. But you can't get fixed that way. You can't fix a lifetime of screwed up knots and tension and stress and pressure and questions by just taking a two-week break. Which actually, if we're honest, is what a lot of people do on a holiday, isn't it? To try and fix everything and reset just to survive. We can all be guilty of that, can't we? And, and in the film, the, the important moment is Curly turns to Mitch and says, that will not fix you. You need to find the one thing that's going to fix you. And he says, what is that? And he doesn't get the answer. The interesting thing is, in this book, in this chapter, Richard Foster says, there is one thing that will fix you. The one thing that will bring total life healing benefits is the discipline of simplicity, which will untie all the knots and everything that kind of holds you up, which is this, doing this one thing right. Seeking first God's kingdom. That's basically it. That's what he says. Everything hinges upon maintaining that as the first thing, seeking God's kingdom. So, he, he goes on then to talk about, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it actually means trying to strip back lots of the stuff that actually, because in our hearts, we could, I, I would imagine, we'd all say, well, yes, that's my desire. Seek first his kingdom. That's what I'd like to do. But if Jesus sat in front of us right now and said, so is that true in your life, Tim? It would probably be quite an uncomfortable moment because it's, it's true in my heart. I want to seek first his kingdom. But the real question is, well, do I? Do I, my, my, how I spend my time, how I spend my, 
relaxing, how I spend my money, how I spend my thoughts, my space, my hours of my day, my work, is it really true? Pursuing this one goal over everything else with a single focus, seeking God's kingdom, is a really, really big deal. And Foster says if we do do that, if we do genuinely place it first, then all our priorities, our possessions, concerns about the you know, ecology, the world, the environment, the poor, our wealth, everything else will get its proper attention afterwards. Jesus teaches that freedom is not found in having and doing, but in keeping God and his will first in our hearts. Another verse, Matthew 6, we know really well, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourself treasure upon the earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither rust nor moth consume, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. He says, life becomes much simpler when one thing matters most, keeping first things first, Jesus and his kingdom. So what he talks about, he talks about our whole life, when you consider our whole life, he, he's desperately urging all of us to try and create margins. You know when you used to kind of write essays and you have space in the margins to write notes, he's saying we need to create margins in our lives, we need to create spaces in our lives so that our lives aren't so packed that there's no more space for head stuff, for reflection, for, for, for the other disciplines, for silence, for solitude. We need to cut back all the clutter and stuff that fills our lives in order to create space. And in order to do that, we've got to be pretty ruthless, cutting some stuff back and letting go of things that tangle us up uh, to create openness in our lives. The discipline of simplicity is an inward reality resulting in an outward lifestyle. Foster writes, of all the disciplines, simplicity is the most visible and therefore most open to corruption. You can see if someone's living a simple life, can't you? And sometimes, if we're honest, when we see people living a really simple life, we might feel sorry for them, actually, at first. Or we might feel like, oh gosh, how poor you are. Or, gosh, maybe, can I give you some stuff? It's really interesting, when we went to Sri Lanka, my kids really noticed this. Um, we went to Sri Lanka and spent time with some beautiful people out there, many of you know them, Jerry and Isabel, and the, the girls in the home and others. And the reality is many of those guys out there have so little physically, materially, um, they have resource-wise, nationally, personally, so, so little resources. And yet the truth is, I sort of came back thinking, I think most of them came back thinking, they have a richness of life that I don't have. What is it about their lives, you know, and these are people who love Jesus and worship, you know, and they've got, you know, don't get me wrong, they've got challenges and they've got great needs, but there was a simplicity that I think you kind of crave, oh, I wish I could jettison some of this stuff that I'm carrying around with me and I think is really important because out there it didn't seem important at all. And the quality of life when you let go of it seems much greater. Of course, we come back to Western life and you begin to pick those things up again, but I was certainly struck with that. So we can think, okay, it sounds good, it sounds really worthy in principle, but what does that actually look like? Well, he has, Foster comes up with ten outward expressions that might help us move forward. So I'm going to share these, and you might think, ouch, no way. But this is what he says, and I quite like them. Number one, buy things for their usefulness, rather than their status. 
Number two, and this may be an ouch, it is for me, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. That's my phone. I would suggest that most of us, many of us, not most of us, I'm sorry, but many of us have an addiction to our smartphones. Is the, your smartphone the last thing you look at at night before you go to bed and the first thing you look at when you wake up in the morning? Try and, try and, you know, I've made decisions about not having it in the room at night. I'm going to try and not look at it an hour before I go to bed because I know if I don't, I get sucked into this thing. You go to a restaurant. We went to a restaurant a while ago and I nudged you and looked across and we were there with, I think we were there with Sam having breakfast and there were uh, three generations as a grandmother, what was clearly a daughter, and three children, two girls and a boy. So there were about five of them sitting at a table. And they went into, this was a cafe where went in for breakfast. All five of them sat down, grandmother, mother, two daughters, son. And within 10 seconds of sitting down, all five were looking at their phones, not talking to each other. It was such a stark thing to see. Um, but I kind of probably look over there. Now I know I've been guilty of that as well, but what is this? If things become an addiction, we need to learn to reject it. Now, we need, might need to ask what that means. I've got a friend who's a vicar. He's given up his smartphone because he's realised for him it was just becoming such a, a pull. He didn't actually feel addicted to it, but he felt trapped by it because everyone was always... He was in so many WhatsApp groups and messaging groups and people contacting him and he just gave him up. Number, number three, when he got to number three, number three, develop a habit giving things away. I like it. Give stuff away. It's one of the best ways of breaking that kind of gaming thing. And, and it's like therapeutic. Deaccumulate. Are you a hoarder? I can be in some areas. Give stuff away if you are. Um, go through your closet. Be really ruthless. I did it um, about six months ago. And I, if I hadn't worn it over the last year, I decided to give it away. Um, and it's amazing how hard that was because it was a thought, but I might wear that. And then I realised, actually, I hadn't worn it for three years, and even if I wanted to wear it now, I couldn't even fit into it. <laughs> Get rid of stuff. Give it away. It breaks something. This is a painful one again for me. Number four, refuse to be propagandised by the custodians of modern gadgetry. <laughs> you know, the power of the new, the special, the fastest, the latest. And there's nothing wrong with these things. That's the point. It's not, it's not that intrinsically in themselves they're evil, but we mustn't be lied to that that's the most important thing. Number... Okay. Not easily. It's quite a hard word to say. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> Refuse to be propagandised by the custodians of modern gadgetry. What we're really saying is, don't let Apple control you. <laughs> and I say that as a fanboy. <laughs> when did you share this book was written? 1978. I mean, if that's not prophetic, because, you know, in 78 it wasn't even a ZX Spectrum. So, <laughs> but, you know, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just. Number five. I love this one as well. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. Owning things is an obsession in our culture. If we own it, we feel we can control it, it's ours. But how about this? Learn to enjoy the beach without feeling you need to buy a part of it. I mean, that, the challenge for me is like, I go to Scotland and I'm like, oh, I could buy a house here. 
And God says, well, why don't you just visit? <laughs> Number six, develop a deeper appreciation for the creation, for God's creation. I think that's about, because we can't control it, can we? We can just enjoy it and rejoice in it and fill the space in it. And I know many of us here feel connected with God in that in a very beautiful way. Number seven, how much does this speak into culture today? Look with a healthy scepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. They're a trap and serve to deepen your bondage. Because debt is a trap, because it ties you into it, doesn't it? You can't escape from it. Again, it's not that you should, we should never buy anything on pay now, buy now, pay later, because there are some circumstances, of course, where it makes sense. We've got money in accounts, we can save it and get. It's not saying that it's an evil, but the danger of it, it becomes a way of life. And, and I know from working in some of the poorest schools in Bristol, primary schools, the trap that so many of those, the people who can least afford to be in debt are the ones who this debt is created for. That's the reality. Um, and it just leads people further and further into bondage. And the kids in my class, their parents, you know, and they could, I mean, they would literally send them to school with a packet of crisps because that's all they can afford for breakfast, or they would send them out and say, go and buy some crisps. And these are four-year-olds, I'm not talking about 15-year-olds. And they would walk to school, uh, and they would not have enough money to clothe them for school, but all of those kids would have an Xbox at home and a PlayStation at home, and because that was... If they didn't do that, they weren't keeping up with everyone around them in the culture. Uh, and if I love my kids, I've got to give them an Xbox. Such a trap, isn't it? It's about stuff, because that's the most important thing. Number eight... Obey Jesus' instructions about, um, about plain, honest speech. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. And it talks about avoiding flattery and half-truths, just a simple way of being in relationship with others, living in truth with one another, speaking plainly, speaking in love, not trying to deceive or disseminate. Um, simpleness, openness, the way that children are really honest, usually. You know that what you see is what you get. It's a simple way of being. Number nine, reject anything that will breed the oppression of others. So that's things like fair trade, thinking about where we buy stuff, thinking about, you know, uh, thinking about the power in our relationships, the power that we can have over others. So when you're in a business world, how, how, do, I, how do I operate in dominion over others? How's my relationship with others? Is it simple, transparent and honest? Or am I coercing and manipulating? And I, how do I have a real simple relationships with the people I'm working with? And then number 10, shun whatever would distract you from your main goal. Seek first his kingdom. It's not that other things might be wrong, but if they're getting ahead, getting in front, preventing you from seeking first his kingdom, it might be work, it might be relationships. It's not that those things are wrong, but they need to be put in the right order. And so if the pressure of work is filling your life so much that actually Jesus is being pushed down the ranking, then something needs to change, and I would suggest it's not Jesus. So we, we need to, where do we need to pair back? Where do we need to make difficult decisions? And I know some of this means radical decisions. Um, I, I, I found this quote, and I don't know who it's from, but I like it. Simplicity is not about deprivation. Simplicity is about greater appreciation for the things that really matter. About reordering things, isn't it? Let me play this from the testimony. I think there may be some bits in it that are helpful. Granted, it's an American culture, American guy, 
but um, it's just something else to feel and take on. The spiritual discipline of simplicity has forced me to try to major in the majors and minor in the minors, identify what is most important in life and focus all of my time and effort and energies towards those. Uh, one of the starting points was where I live uh, and, and being comfortable uh, with, with the home we were in and that that's where we wanted to be. We were in the, uh, in the heart of the city and it's centrally located, so it's close to work, it's close to church, it's close to our grocery store, it's close to our gym. Secondly, uh, the home was one that was affordable for us. It was also one that uh, was maintainable for us. It has a yard, but it's not a yard that consumes all of our time. And uh, so it was that perfect balance uh, for a place that we could call home, but the home didn't own us, we owned it. One of the things that's very near and dear to me is financial stewardship, and simplicity has played a big part in that plan. I have a desire to uh, share our resources with others, and by, able, by simplifying our life, we've been able to save money, which we can then in turn uh, share with others. For us, we love to uh, be a part of uh, sharing our, our resources with our church, with parachurch organizations, with the community, and, uh, and, and education, those are all things that are very important to us and uh, provides tremendous uh, satisfaction and joy for, for each of us. Simplicity even plays a role in our financial giving. We, all of our, our contributions are done uh, automatically, so it's a very simple process. We do it once, it's set up, and, uh, and the money goes to those organizations which, which we desire to support. Uh, but I think it's also even strong biblically because we are certainly sharing our first fruits. M many of the decisions we made were not revolutionary changes in our life. Those were things that my wife and I had already valued. By going through this process, we were able to identify those, name those, and build on those and so rather than many of those things happening randomly um, because it's what we what we it's the way we lived there was a purpose in those decisions as we made as we made those simplicity has even played a role uh, in in our understanding and application of the bible there's so many great stories and lessons and verses in the bible but three just come, uh, just stick out in my mind, and I just try to remember them daily to try to keep it simple. And that's uh, one is in Matthew 22, which is love the God, love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second part of that verse uh, talks about loving your neighbor. Uh, secondly, the second verse that's really important to me is is how I live my life, and uh, it's in Philippians 4, which is do not worry about anything, but instead pray. And then third and final uh, is in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 when Solomon's talking about all of the things in life that he's, that he's experienced and uh, how it can all be meaningless. But at the end he says it all comes down to one thing. It's fear God and obey my commands. That seems pretty simple. So... One person's story. 
some of the reflections that he and his wife have considered. I think what's really key in any of these, uh, any of these disciplines is it's really easy to read a book like this or to hear someone speak on these things and then either to feel really guilty, I don't do that, I can't do that, or to feel really angry, I'm not going to do that, how dare you tell me I should do that, or just to feel a bit overwhelmed and uncertain what it means. And the point of these things, it's, it's really important that we know it's not a cookie cutter, he did this, or therefore I better do this. You know, it's really important to be led by the Spirit. So each of our questions are, should be, Lord, what, what are you putting your finger on in my life right now that probably needs attention? Where, where am I overcluttered in my dealings? Where are some of my priorities not quite right? Remember, simplicity isn't about deprivation. It's not about stuff being taken from you, you greedy things, you greedy Westerners. You don't know how good you've got it. You need to suffer a bit. That is not what the Father's saying. What he's saying is he longs for you to have greater joy in your life, greater freedom in your life, greater um, appreciation for the wonderful gifts that you have. So there's a rising sense of thankfulness. I think my view on this, as I've kind of reflected on it a lot, is, is God's asking us how we can be more open-handed, open-hearted. If we're open-hearted, we're incredibly thankful for everything that we have. You know, that's my view on giving, isn't it? You know, people often come to me and say, say Tim, Tim, should we be tithing? Should, should I be giving 10% before tax or after tax? And, should I, and, and they want in the detail. Oh, I understand why people ask those things. People want guidance. But my view on this is always, my view of my stuff is everything I have belongs to God. And Lord, I want to know what you want to give back to me to steward and want to learn to be trusting in that. Because a lot of this comes back to trust and faith, doesn't it? If we trust God, it's much easier to be open-hearted because we know he's a good father who's not going to just take stuff from us because he wants to. And he's a, he's a good father who gives us good things. Open-hearted, thankful, recognising everything as a gift. And open-handed, because God gives us things to steward. It might be a glorious house. It might be um, incredible gifts that he's given you. It may be talents that you have. It may be your ability to work in an area. Uh, it may be resources. It may be finance. God giving you gifts, whatever those things are. And if we hold them out like that, well, one, if we have an open hand, God is able to give us more. If we're closed, it's quite hard to receive. If we're open-handed, God can, actually. But also it means we're sharing and their resources that we're able to give away to others. And because we don't have a hold on them, it's not so painful. If others take them, and maybe God gives other things, there's a freedom. And that's what I believe the church is supposed to be, a resource where, you know, it's deeply challenging, isn't it, in Acts, where it talks about they had all the things in common. And we think, oh, yeah, but I mean, they, you know, they weren't living with mortgages, were they? And they ended up paying the gas bill. They lived in common, they shared things, they sold land, they did this... They put, them, they put the pot of the, of the money at the feet of the apostles. I mean, if tonight, at the end of the night, you feel like you want to do that, don't let me stop you. But there was a sense of, we're all in this together, and we trust God to provide, and we trust to do it well. Now, we're not saying, yeah, I'd like all your mortgage deeds placed at the foot of the vicar before you go home tonight. But it's about saying, but what we have done, we want to offer for the blessing of others, as a sense of family. Stewards holding what God's given us. I've already talked about, because it's good to think about what might this look like in my life. Then. I want to give you a few moments in a minute to think about that. 
I've already talked about uh, going back to this addiction, the things that might control you, what might you need to cut back on to declutter. Um, for many people, I do think it is technology. It might be emails or Brits, the phone. I made the choice to no longer have my work emails on my phone. I have to make little choices. Now that's not a massive thing and suddenly I've, I've become this champion of simplicity. But what that has done is created a bit of headspace for me when I'm with my phone and a bit of time space for me when I'm with my phone because I'm, I'm not now permanently being chased by emails that I better just check haven't come through for work. I've made the decision that to get my emails I need to go to my computer and lift the lid on the laptop and look at it. It's, it's a discipline for me so that I am not perpetually having the looming voice of emails here because if that space in my head is filled with that then that's less space for Jesus to be in. But what about in your life? What other things might need simplifying? It might be going through your house to declutter. Some of you that might be clothes. I wish my daughter was here this evening. For others it might be stuff that we've accumulated. Sometimes we collect stuff from our past and sometimes that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? You know, we, we keep mementos that remind us that can be good. But I have met people who carry so much stuff with them from their past because they're afraid to let go of stuff almost. And they're constantly trapped back into the past by it. And it's like it's hard for them to live for the future because and some of it's about regrets or sadness or you know, I'm not telling you to go home and burn all your photos. <laughs> but maybe ask the question, is there things there that do? Or what about limiting the amount of time that you spend watching telly or listening to the radio? Or, you know, for a generation these days, it may be about Xbox, gaming, that sort of stuff, in order to make the king of the kingdom priority. Um, the suggestion was to take time and reflect and write down how you might want to embrace simplicity in your life. And it might begin with a longing, I wish that I could. And it might seem a longing which seems impossible to fulfil right now. I wish I could spend half an hour a day just walking with the Lord. Well, at least if you verbalise that desire, you're much more likely to move towards it than if it doesn't ever find an outlet in you. I, um, I, I try and walk, having a dog is really helpful. Uh, difficult in some ways, but helpful in other ways for me in a busy life. You have to walk, the, do- the dog needs walking, uh, as my wife regularly tells me. The dog needs walking. Uh, and our children who say, oh, I walk the dog, oh, of course I walk the dog if you get a dog every day. Kids don't walk the dog ever. Um, but actually, I have learned the joy of walking the dog because it has created an hour space in my day. What's interesting was, for the first year or so, I always used to take earphones and listen to an audio book sometimes worship but hand on heart not very often if I'm honest sometimes some teaching I, I, I was noise was always there um, I have discovered in the last six months the joy of actually choosing to not do that and do you know what mainly struck me and I said Sarah, I would, Sarah and I were talking about the other day I often walk up in Rainbow Woods where there's loads of people out walking 90% of people I see have either got earplugs in or a phone to their head and a lot of them, maybe it's be, a lot of them are women, but that's perhaps because you know they, they're managing the life and the family and the job and all the rest of it, whereas blokes just you know we can do one thing at a time. Um, loads of them are on the phone doing business deals while they're walking the dog. I couldn't believe how many are talking business while they're walking the dog. I, the world's broken. I 
think. And that's just symptomatic of the state we've got ourselves in, that we have to be multitasking, doing all this stuff at a time. And I was wandering through Rainbow Woods, beautiful sunshine, glorious crisp day, through the trees, against the autumn. And every person I saw, every person was either on a phone or had a headset in. And I was listening to the birds in the trees and I just thought, oh, I'd learned something that I recognised I was getting sucked into myself. Simplicity, not rocket science. Am I a better Christian because of it? I'm not sure, but I feel a better person when I've done that. Take time to reflect how you would love to embrace simplicity in your life. Maybe stop using your phone an hour before bed. Maybe don't keep your phone near you, so when you're sleeping. Sometimes that's a practical thing. Some of you will need to buy an alarm clock instead of using your phone. I wonder how many of us Maybe more if there are some of the students here. How many of us use our phones as alarm clocks to wake us up in the morning? Get an alarm clock and get it out of your room. Uh, another tip, ask someone to be accountable. You know, make yourself accountable to someone. Um, if you're struggling or you feel like... I mean, my wife's brilliant, because I mean, I say I don't keep my phone in my bedroom at night, but there are times when Sarah says, why is your phone there? She'll challenge me, <laughs> which is really helpful, because you can slip back into just ways of being and just getting lazy about it. Keep someone to keep you accountable. And remember that simplicity is more freedom, not less freedom. God is calling us to live a simple life as Jesus lived simply. To create more space and the mental capacity to allow the Holy Spirit to move into all areas of my life. For God to be increasingly present and for me to listen from beginning to end of each day. The other thing that is worth saying, I know for some of us, some of us will find some of these disciplines easier than others, and that is to do with personality. I'm spontaneous, creative, extrovert. Uh, anyone who knows me will know that I find it incredibly hard to be silent. <laughs> or still, more importantly still, I find it incredibly hard to sit still. I will get bored of myself in about three minutes if I sit still. Which is why often you have music or destruction going on. Which is why it's a discipline. And which, of course, is why it's important. <laughs> because I can be comfortable with noise and distraction. And I can work with all sorts of ludicrous noises. That's a real gift. But sometimes to really hear from God, I need just simplicity and silence. And everything in me screams, stop. What is really interesting, and I've shared this before, is um, I went on a silent retreat in my final year at Vicar School at college. And there was nothing I wanted to do less I got slightly late to this, so we all had to go on retreat and we could pick different ones we wanted to. And I was late getting there the day the train was late, so everyone had picked all the other ones, and the only one that was left was sign retreat. And I just thought this was God punishing me, being late. <laughs> and um, I mean, I would have rather have gone on kind of like, you know, kind of flagellation retreat than being <laughs> I genuinely. Uh, I went on this silent retreat really angry with God, really cross, because actually some of my friends were going on the retreats as well, and we did, had very little time to connect outside of lectures. It was an incredibly intense time. And I was with kind of four really close friends, knowing we were going to have a weekend together, and none of us could talk to each other. So I was really cheesed off. I wasn't feeling very well. I had to leave Sarah and the kids. And, I remember, and it was in the middle of nowhere as well. It was the worst place to drive, like a three-hour drive to nowhere. I remember driving there being really cross, really angry, knowing that I couldn't say hello, getting through the door and that really embarrassing thing when you walk through the door and you're not even sure you can say hello to people because you're on a silent retreat. 
and everyone kind of grinning at each other, but just really cheesed off. I remember going through the first, we had a reflection led by some nun on, on the first evening, and I just sat there seizing through the whole thing. It was about the beauty of God and silence, and I just sat there wanting to murder her and everyone. I mean, I'm genuinely, I was really, I'm serious, I'm not laughing about it. I was really upset, really cross. Um, we were supposed to then go off and be silent, but I've always been silent, it was killing me. Um, and I just uh, ate food very quickly, silently, and I went to bed because I was really cross. Went to bed and got absolutely nailed by God in the night. I mean, I probably had one of the most powerful dreams and encounters. Wake up, woke up weeping because God got me. Because, and, and just in the silence of a couple of hours, even with all my sinful nature and angriness and kind of... There was something about silence that had undone me inside. And within a few hours, God had done something quite amazing. And I still remember it. And so actually, interestingly after that, now whenever I go on retreats, I always choose to go on silent retreats. Which is brilliant, because increasingly I don't like talking to people. So that's perfect for me. It's not that one retreat at all. Silence. Just about possessions. Um, my family had collected lots of antiques and beautiful things, and we had them in my house. But now, having downsized, we have to get rid of them because this is not room for them. And it's a freedom. Mm. It's like a burden lifted off my shoulders. I haven't got to polish it and make it look lovely because there's no room for it. How come Very interesting. Uh, did you polish it for the Victoria? No, I don't know what it is. Oh, you don't. That's really helpful, yeah. I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's funny, isn't it? Because sometimes we think, oh, it's going to be really painful giving things up. But actually, then when we do, it's incredibly. I, we, we used to laugh about this. My, my, many of you will know this. My mother, because I've talked about it at church, has, since I left home at the age of 18 and went off to university, my mother has written to me a letter every week of my life. University was a little while ago now, and my three brothers. We've all had a letter every single week for our whole life, which is remarkable given that I've written to my mother probably twice. Um, but she always used to write to us, didn't she? She'd say, Me and your father have gone to the tip this week. When we were growing up, when we were in our 20s and 30s, we'd say, well, How is earth have they got stuff to chuck away? How can they keep going to the tip? And also, why is that such a big thing anyway? It's like, you know, I don't care if you've gone to the tip. Now I've hit um, my late 40s. <laughs> um, we find ourselves on a Friday getting quite excited about going to the tip. <laughs> There's nothing more therapeutic than getting rid of stuff. Now I've granted a lot of it's junk. But we also love going and kind of giving stuff away to mercy in action or giving stuff to people that we know that will really bless them because we don't really need it. There is real freedom in giving stuff away. But at the same time, we can feel that tug of, oh, I might need it, or it might have value, it might have worth, I don't want to give it away. Giving stuff away is a really powerful way of breaking things. I think it's a really helpful thing, Peter. Yeah. 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 Yeah.